Hello, and welcome to the Zircona Growth Insights Podcast, bringing clarity to the complexities of consumer behavior. Episodes feature industry experts, partners, and guests across the 26 industries we track, representing nearly $4 trillion in global consumer spending. Our goal is to give you transformative insights and the most complete view of consumer and market opportunities. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Growth Insights Podcast. I'm your host, Joan Driggs, and today I'm joined by Lance Goodridge, Executive Vice President, Analytics and Insights here at Circana. Lance has years of experience in analytics and marketing consulting with expertise on commercial spend effectiveness and automated solutions, especially with an emphasis on marketing mix, in-store execution, forecasting, revenue growth management, pricing optimization, and retailer trade strategies. So I sought Lance out to speak with me about forecasting. And as we approach the end of 2023, everyone wants a crystal ball into 2024. But if the past few years have taught us anything, predicting the future is really hard. So Lance, we need you and your crystal ball. Welcome. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. So for the past year, the economy has been unstable, um, and there are still more headwinds headed our way, including the resumption of student loan payments, high interest rates, below average savings, record high credit card debt, and I would say an overall reduction in the access to money. Um, and of course, political uncertainty. You know, we've dodged one government shutdown, but another one is really looming before the end of the year. So as much as there are these headwinds, we know that in the CPG world, so much of what we're buying is non-discretionary. Um, we're going to spend what we have to spend for so many items. We also, I think, benefit from being more affordable, obviously, than durable goods. Um, people are, are going to choose to spend more for some of those small indulgences, like you know, alcohol or a, maybe a good piece of meat to really make an amazing meal, um, even as they forego buying like a new pair of sneakers or some jeans. So Lance, how are all these factors, these up and down factors, worked into demand forecasting? Yeah, it's a great question. So thank you for having me again. Um, as you mentioned, there are still several factors that are driving the uncertainty that we've experienced over the last 18 to 24 months, probably even a bit longer than that with, with, with COVID. Inflation is still persistent. Uh, interest rates are compressing our ability to borrow money and the cost of money that goes up, that goes with it. Um, savings that are an all-time low. Um, credit card debt, like you mentioned, is, is way up. Um, financing costs are way up. Home equity lines of credit are way up. I saw that in September, there was a record number of foreclosures, for instance. So there's a lot of, of a lot of pressure in the market continuing to happen. And it doesn't appear that that's going to abate um, anytime soon, uh, certainly over the next you know short term uh, few months. Um, so really what it does is it puts a lot of pressure on companies to predict what the consumer is likely to do in the future, both in the short term and in the long term. We can talk in generalities, but I think what what a lot of uh, folks who are in the business of consumer packaged goods are after is what is the forecast likely to be for my business, my category, my store, my region, my market, et cetera. And, and really what we try to do is we try to take a, a causal based approach to that. So 
One philosophy would be, let's just take an overall trend and let's see what's up, what's down. A lot of companies do that. A lot of internal forecasting happens uh, with that approach. Uh, what is the current growth rate? Let's extend that for the short term. Let's layer in some factors that we think is going to happen up or down. Uh, a colleague of mine has told me that every forecast is wrong. It's just a matter of how wrong do you want to be. <laughs> so when we start to add in causal factors um, that really help us predict what is likely to happen, then we can get a lot tighter about uh, our assumptions of what is likely to happen. And again, if we have this philosophy that forecast is is that our forecast is going to be inaccurate, we just want to tighten up the inaccuracy around that forecast and give it some boundaries. So we have some contingency ideas in terms of, of what is what is going to happen. So if you take a causal-based approach where we look at all the underlying factors of what's driving sales today, we can then start to predict what those causal factors would be into the future and then just do the algebra or do the math to, to figure out what the forecast is likely to be. There are certain things that you cannot predict. COVID was one of those things, um, hurricanes, uh, natural disasters, unpredictable factors happen all the time. But what we want to do is we want to narrow those down into um, the, the things that we can predict. So what are the causal factors for our business? What are the, the impacts of CPI? What are the impacts of weather or the economy or finance rates or things like that? Let's separate those out and predict those independent of what we can control, which are our own marketing, our own pricing and, and, and things like that. I have to say, you know, you just said something so amazing about all the inaccuracies and man, how do you gear up for work every day going, boy, I hope I'm less wrong today than I was the day before. <laughs> well, you can't really think of it that way. I mean, it, it's you're, you're trying to put a pin on something. And, and I know that as we become more finance driven in our organizations, we want to be more finite in our guesses. But this really does integrate forward and backward. If we think if we think from what a consumer buys on shelf all the way back to the different stages of supply chain into what I need to, to buy for the raw materials to produce, the accuracy of the forecast really does matter if I ripple through the entire chain. So getting tighter on what consumers are likely to do becomes extremely important because I need to know what I'm going to produce for the future, what products, what range of products, you know, where do I locate those things? Um, it, it's all it's all the factors that go into consumer demand. And there are different types of demand, as you said, you know, and and I can't imagine that every project for every category is going to require all of those causal inputs, you know, the knowns and the unknowns. So can you break mm -hmm. that down for me a little bit? Yeah, um, some some folks just need to know what their item is going to do. So I can look at things on an item basis and say, hey, is this item going to outperform the other items that I might offer or the category offers in a particular setting? That That is one form of, of, of forecasting. The other would be I need to know what my portfolio does in the context of a category. And when we get into that situation, we want to get into what's transferable in and out of my portfolio to competitors and then what is the overall growth of the category? Do I have growth in this category to make the investments in these innovation products, for instance, or, or the existing products on shelf? How, how should I assort my, my products or how many, how many products should I have available of a particular type to be able to capture the demand that consumers might have? 
Um, and then you get into some things that are a little bit longer term. What is the long term forecast for this category in the context of the total store or the total aisle or some other part of the shopping trip? Because what what inflation has done for us is it's forced our, our purchases into an overall trip uh, versus in the past where we've really looked at things. We, we make choices based on the product need or the product type or the brand or the cat sometimes category to category. But what we're doing now is we're saying I have $50 to spend or $75 to spend this week. I need to fit everything I possibly can into that basket. How do I allocate that $75 across categories that really don't have interactions with each other, but they're, they're the ones I need to start making trade-offs with. So we start to get into a lot of uh, brand shifting into value brands, a lot of channel shifting that that we've never seen before. We've seen evidence of it, but I think more of it's coming uh, in in the in the next several months as consumers really start to ratchet down what they're able to spend on versus what they want to spend on. So I like that because now you're you're putting your demand, you know, your demand forecasting. You're you're putting that through the lens of the consumer. And Correct. to me, that must be kind of how your business is changing or your day-to-day -day business is changing the most of focusing on that. I mean, you always do focus on the consumer, I'm sure, but with some of these behaviors. So you mentioned to me trade downs, you mentioned to me channel shifting. Mm -hmm. What are some of the other factors that you're looking at in terms of being able to predict consumer demand? Well, we're trying to figure out what consumers are likely to do. And there's a number of different things, both internal and external, that influence those decisions. Some of them that we can control and see, some of them we can't. So what we're really trying to do is understand everything that a consumer goes through in a shopper journey. And if they're looking at a particular category or their trip, we want to know um, what's what's influencing that purchase decision, what's influencing that trip today. So we try to account for as many things as we possibly can, but we need to layer in judgment on top of that as well. If we think about forecasting as a function, you know, what is a good forecast versus a bad forecast? Number one, does it does it satisfy the requirement of does it fit today's performance? So if I can come up with a, a forecast model that says I'm going to be down 10%, but if I my business is up 2%, it's hard to believe I'm going to be down 10 or vice versa. If I'm down 10, it's hard to believe I'm going to be up 2. So does it fit current performance? Number one. Number two, how believable and predictable are those causal factors that I have? So if I say that inflation is no longer going to be an issue, what is my evidence to say that? Is it just a belief or is it, do I have something that, that tells me that inflation is, is actually not going to be the problem that it has been for the last 18 to 24 months? So that's number two. And then number three, there is this thing called company objectives too. So we need to have a forecast that's going to fit with the judgment that the company uh, has as well. We, we can't take our best case scenario and use that as a planning objective. We have to make sure that when we say there's a range of possibilities for a forecast, it's within the bounds of what a company objective might be. What, what we found in the past, in the last couple of years, is that with all the price increases that were happening, 
those were all primarily profit gains for a lot of different manufacturers. But those profit gains then became the objectives that we were after. So we needed more price increases to support those profit objectives. We can't have that scenario when we're predicting a downturn in the economy or some sort of um, downturn in our demand. We need to be realistic about whether it fits with our company uh, objectives or not. So really, it's it's does it fit with current performance? Are, are these causal factors predictable and believable? And number three, how do they how do they fit with our company objectives as well? Well, that is a huge question right there, because with all these price increases, you know, companies, of course, would love to see those profits continue, but is it sustainable? You know, how is that, how is pricing impacting demand? And are you able to kind of talk some of these companies down a little bit to say, hey, you know, you've had all these quarters of fantastic profit. Maybe you need to level set a little bit. Yeah, it's it's a bit of a struggle uh, because we have been advising uh, manufacturer clients that um, there is some dark clouds forming, and they haven't necessarily agreed with that um, in in the most recent time periods because it's been so. Price increases have not resulted in a in a volume decline in the last twenty four months, which is which is shows a softening of what we call elasticity. So what that means, though, is that consumers are less conscious of price. They have been less conscious of price uh, during the COVID period and post-COVID. Now they're becoming a little bit more conscious of price. But it also says that the vehicle that I've used to spur demand in the past, which is price or promoted price, doesn't work as well as it used to in the past. So that then requires me to make additional investments into a vehicle that doesn't work as well. So there, there needs to be other ways to in, actually insulate that consumer beyond just promotion. And it can't just be let's increase the discount level or increase the number of weeks of promotion. It needs to be in the areas that are traditional in marketing. What is my innovation strategy? What is my advertising strategy? How am I doing relative to competitors in my competitive context or category? So it's we have to differentiate our brands in the minds of the consumers to overcome some of these things that are that 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 are happening in the decision making for for consumers. So and this kind of ties in again with that consumer path to purchase because mm-hmm. I've also seen that promotions have come back but they're not as deep as they used to be and the way people are accessing those promotions has changed. It's not so much the paper circulars in fact some retailers are doing away with them completely, but that means you really have to encourage consumers to be on your your digital properties, your apps and things mm-hmm. like that to access those deals. So are deals up maybe a little bit more digitally or are you taking into consideration where consumers are, are finding the deals? We are. Um, you, you bring up a great point. I, I drink a lot of carbonated soft drinks, and those are typically a well-promoted category. In the past, it used to be buy three 12-packs for $12 or buy three for 15 Now they're $8.99 per pack. And even a good deal at $7.99, a dollar off, is not impactful for me because that's still that still doesn't achieve what I remember, what my reference price is. So what I've been seeing is a lot more now of consolidated deals, less frequent, but more consolidated deals where folks are are buying, getting back to real 
deal periods versus an everyday uh, discount level. But pushing folks to a digital ad is is definitely efficient for both retailers and manufacturers because it, number one, it anchors the the consumer to the retail store, which is what all retailers are after. That's really what what they want is the traffic. Uh, and number two, it it inherits it, it uh, enhances a loyalty uh, to that retailer that 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 retailers are after as well. So if I know I go to a Kroger or an Albertsons or a Publix to get a deal, I am going to go to them for the deal next time. It's not like I'm going to go range and look elsewhere if I know I got a good deal at one of those one of those retail outlets. So that definitely is a factor in as people start to look for ways to manage what they spend on certain categories. Now, I will say that reference price, because it's been two years of price increases, reference prices are starting to move. So I no longer think my 12 pack is $399. I'm now thinking that, hey, $899, what's a good deal off of $899? Not, hey, this was a good deal at $399. So it, 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 there is some shifting in terms of the mentality of consumers, but I'm still fitting that within the context of a total purchase. So what does my total trip look like? I will say about the digital apps, it does provide consumers a way to manage their entire basket a little better than just shopping through the store where I might have impulse purchases um, over and above what I quote plan to purchase. So it, it works positively for the consumers, but negatively sometimes for the retailer and the manufacturer because I'm missing on, on some of the impulse purchases that I might've had in the past. Yeah. You know, I like what you said about those reference prices because I'm with you, you know, it's still, I still kind of, you know, grind my teeth a little bit when I'm buying crackers, because I remember what I was paying for crackers a couple of years ago. Um, yeah. But that leads me to even thinking about different pack sizes. And that, again, that hunt for value, because we know that there's some consumers out there who are actually buying larger pack sizes to get that, that economy of scale. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of consumers out there who can't afford to do that. And so they're looking right. for the lowest price point. How is that impacting even how you work with manufacturers to decide on pack size or pricing anything at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's two pieces. Number one, the middle the middle gets squeezed, and I know that's that's kind of an old an old term, but essentially you've got folks who are looking for value who can afford you know fifteen dollars for five. Um, that's good for them. That's a per value or per unit uh, value that that they see. Others might only have two dollars to spend so they're looking for a single even though it doesn't fill as many of the of the usage uh, occasions that it has in the past it's all they can afford so there's sort of a bifurcation of what we offer to to consumers what it really does is it puts a stress on your assortment so you need to understand uh, on the shelf, what am I showing on the shelf that appeals to the greatest number of consumers at any given time? I can't make them all value packs because then I miss out on, on all the real true value consumers. They can't afford the bigger packs. On the other hand, I need to offer something to both, um, but I can't neg- ignore some of the, the base or core users that I have because they're going to continue to reliably purchase my product. So understanding 
the flexibility of the shelf, what kind of transferability exists. So if my value pack is not present, do I stay within the portfolio and buy a couple of singles of the same brand or do I look for a competitive value pack? So understanding that assortment, reinforcing the pricing associated with the assortment and making sure I retain as many consumers as I can against that shelf becomes extremely important. It's it's a multifaceted approach to the consumer, making sure you have it priced appropriately and making sure you're, have, you're, you're making available products that they want to purchase. Is there a plan with four manufacturers maybe to come back to that middle a little bit? Is there an anticipated end date for this you know, that bifurcation that you just mentioned? Well, I mean, that's a difficult question because if we look back on pre-COVID to where we are today, in a lot of categories, we're anywhere from 25 to 40% more expensive than we were before. So it's hard to believe that that's all going to happen overnight. We're not going to have a return to a full assortment uh, because of those price increases across the store. We just don't have the wage growth to, to keep up with the rising prices. Now, some might argue that an adjustment was necessary. We were undervaluing our goods and services at retail. Um, others will say we're completely overpriced now and no consumers can afford us. So I do think there will be a return to the middle, but innovation has to play a role here. And innovation needs to play a role for pricing as well. It's not just about what's my new, cool, and different ingredient. It's here's an ingredient that's differentiated from what I currently offer, and here's why it's worth more to you. That way, we're going to be able to get expectations in line with what consumers are willing to spend for products and for value and for the features and, and, and things that they're looking for out of products. And then you'll get a much more balanced approach to your offerings. Yeah, maybe that'll help me with those reference prices. If I feel, like, right. if I feel right. like there's more perceived value, whatever that looks like, Correct. Yeah, right. that, that should help. What we found actually in a recent uh, study, and we've talked to a couple of clients about this, is when manufacturers launch innovation at the same price as their line, it actually detracts from the brand versus brands who have innovation launch with a price increase for that innovation. It actually enhances the the um the the premium image of the brand. So consumers are, if you're telling them something is new and different they expect you to price for that as well. It can't be line price because it says everything is the same. I, there's no reason for me to pay attention to this. It's just something that you said was important, but I don't believe you because I, there's no price differential. So it actually can work in your in your favor if, you, if there really is a product benefit associated with the innovation, it should give you the liberty to, to price to that, to that innovation. That's pretty interesting. And we know from our new product paysetters work that consumers really are looking to their trusted brands to bring the innovation. You know, it doesn't always have to be these new upstarts coming out of left field type thing. They want to see, hey, I already trust you. I'm willing to give you my money. So that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, and um, it's a way for uh, us to continue to maintain that trust with consumers as well because they buy brands for a lot of different reasons. One of which is I it makes, it makes me feel good about my purchase in this brand. And... Um, I, I like what they bring to me as a consumer. I like their innovation. I like their flavors. I like their ingredients. I like their health benefits. 
So if we continue to do that, and a lot, a lot of that was sacrificed during COVID as well, as we look to price increases and supply chain didn't allow us to produce the products we wanted to produce. But the two areas that are that have been overlooked in the last 24 months are innovation and media. And media is starting to return. We're starting to, to get out there and talk about our brands again and starting to help differentiate in the minds of the consumers. But innovation needs to come back as well. That's an investment that 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 manufacturers and retailers, quite frankly, have to make. I like that. Obviously, with new product pay setters, I love hearing about a push for innovation. So thank you. Um, <laughs> let's talk a little bit more about like trading down and channel shifting. Um, some of the work that we did recently for consumer trends, um, which is a something that we produce for colleagues, pointed out that people are shopping fewer stores or fewer channels or even mm -hmm. stores within channels. Um, and to me, that is kind of a behavior that started with the pandemic because we wanted you know to get as much from one store as possible. But even as we opened up, we might be expanding to a few more stores, but compared to history or historical periods, uh-uh, we're shopping fewer. Mm -hmm. So how is that impacting like the shopper consideration or how, how the retailers and brands are adjusting to that? Yeah, I, I think um, the pandemic behavior allowed us to become more digitally focused. I think your, your e-com sales or your um, click and collect went up I want to say from like 9% of purchases up to 14 or 15%. It might be even inch, inching a little bit higher than that. So the behavior is that I plan my purchase. I plan, I look ahead, I see what's available and I buy what I can. I want to reduce the number of trips that I make. Um, so I think the behavior of planning purchase has brought the number of trips down a little bit because there's a deal-seeking mentality. And if I want, if I can, gas prices are not, are not great either. I mean, that's another it, cost of transportation is is quite a bit higher than it was back two or three years ago as well. So I want to make sure that I'm I'm hitting the the fewest number of outlets I can to to hit the the number of purchase requirements I might have. So I think that that planning component associated with the pandemic and the behavior and moving to e-com has carried over a bit. Um, I think folks are going in and they're finding what they can. And they're making do with what they can with fewer retailers because it's just easier. It's easier to maintain that. I, it's harder for me to say I've got $25 to spend at this outlet versus $15 to spend at this one versus 10 to spend at this one. It's easier to say I've got all this money to spend here. Let me see how many parts of my uh, purchase requirements I can fulfill. So I think there's a behavioral thing. And until we get more comfortable with the cost of goods and services, I don't see the outlets the number of outlets going up. It's just, um, it just doesn't make sense from a consumer standpoint to go to many outlets to fulfill my requirements and I can get most of it in one or two. It might be that I go to my grocery store two times a week and Costco once on the weekend, something like that versus hitting two or three stores per week each and every time I have a purchase. And that totally, again, supports that need to invest digitally either mm -hmm. in the apps or even as you said with media, just to get people to engage with your store. Cause if you're not part of that consideration set, you know, you could fall off completely. Um, so that's right. interesting. So before we wrap up, I just want to talk a little bit more about, you know, getting the assortment right, because things have changed so much. There's been so much fluctuation. We've talked about larger packs versus that, you know, 
um, lower price point. Um, we've talked about fewer trips. Um, so how are, I mean, that's what a struggle to get that assortment right. It is. And luckily, there are some solutions that can help in that regard. So there is this notion of what's called transferable demand. And the way transferable demand works is that if I have, uh, we have a, a number of products on the shelf. If I remove one of those products, a consumer has a couple of choices. Number one, they can say, I'm going to purchase something else of the same brand. I'm going to purchase something else like it with a different brand, or I'm not going to purchase anything. I really wanted that product. So it's not available. I'm not going to purchase anything. That's what we would call incremental versus transferable. So we divide all products into those two components. And when, I, when we look at assortment at, at a category level or a segment level, or even an aisle level, we're trying to capture as many consumers as we can, retaining them in that space. So what is the minimum number of products I need to capture the most number of consumers' purchases? That's the notion of how the, the assortment is working. And then price has a role in that as well. If I have a product on shelf, but it's not at the right price, then I might actually look at a different outlet. I might look at uh, a price club or I might look at uh, a mask or something like that to see if there's a better price there. So there's prices is, is a definitely a component of the assortment, but it becomes a mathematical exercise and then it's validated by consumer behavior. Are they purchasing what I thought they would? Because you've got certain types of consumers that go to certain types of stores. You might have to have a slightly different variation of what's available to that consumer set in that store. There's no such thing as a national blueprint for a category. You need to have regional differences and even local differences below the region uh, to make sure that you're capturing the, the needs of, of all those consumers that, that shop that store. So it's largely a, a mathematical exercise to map out what, quote, should be on the shelf, but that then needs to be validated with actual consumer behavior. What are they purchasing? How do they feel about those purchases and combining some sort of consumer component into that math piece? Man, I'm going to have you come back and just talk to me about regional and local differences, because that, to me, tells a really interesting anthropological story. Mm -hmm. So Lance, as we wrap up, I, I do want to find out, okay, because we started this with forecasting is really hard, but mm -hmm. where do you see things looking in 2024? I, 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 my opinion, <laughs> I, know, I, panel, always to, I always try to say it's my opinion. Um, I see things looking pretty bleak through the end of this year, quite honestly. There might be some relief uh, with some additional spending packages and things like that, but I see things pretty bleak through the through the Christmas and, and well into Q1 of next year. I do think that consumer behavior will be modified and manufacturer strategies and retailer strategies will start to be modified probably somewhere uh, into Q2 uh, mid-year of next year. But I see there's just this this circling of bad information that's coming together at once, which is which is problematic. You've got the expiring, like all the things that you mentioned in the beginning, expiring of student loans, the resumption of, of uh, rent control, 
Um, you know, there's just all of these things. The inflation is still persistent. The in mortgage interest rates are high. The, there's just a lack of access to money. All of those things are really going to constrict the consumer's ability to make purchases beyond what they necessarily need. So I, I, I feel like there's going to be a real compression in the economy, uh, at least for the next three to six months. And then then we find our way out of that uh, well into 2024. Yeah, I'm just so strong struck by the high amount of personal debt that's out there, yes. that, you know, and you mentioned too HELOCs, those home equity yeah. line credits. That was kind of a surprise to me that I didn't see coming, um, mm -hmm. but it shouldn't have surprised me, I guess. So, okay. The then good news is there's plenty of jobs out there. So there does seem to be a, a rosy job picture, which is great. But the wages are not consistent with what's happening externally. So that creates compression for every household. Well, and I do like a I do like a rosy outlook there, Lance. So I'm going to just <laughs> say there's lots of jobs out there. Um, so I wanted to recap a little bit of of what you said, and that is that there's different ways of looking at forecasting, um, and neither one of them includes a crystal ball, which I think is interesting. I'm especially um, fascinated by some of those causal um, challenges or causal things that you put into it, um, as well as some of the things that you can predict, you know, the, the things like weather patterns or um, finance rates, um, but also with, you know, the consumer mindset and how consumer behavior is shaping demand. It kind of goes both ways. I just think that that's pretty interesting that the whole approach to assortment is so fascinating because you, I, I understand that you want to have as few products being exciting or um, preferred by the most number of people. But at the same time, we are a population that wants it our way on mm -hmm. demand. Um, I love hearing about how our shopping um, set, our consideration set is changing in terms of how we shop stores, the rise of digital and the impact that it has on how we're preparing and where we're actually going to shop. I see that as like I said, we have other data that really does show it's you have to work very hard to get in that consideration set. Mm -hmm. And that at the long term, you know, things aren't going to look great for the next quarter, three quarters, four quarters. Um, but I, again, I'm an optimist. So I'm going to look for that ray of sunshine out there wherever I can. And with that, thank you for being here. And I look forward to having you back. All right. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to the Zirconic Growth Insights podcast so you don't miss an episode. And let us know what you'd like us to cover. We'll serve it up in a future episode. Look for us wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to review Zirconic Growth Insights. Want to learn more? Visit us at zircona.com and connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn.